before I uh, begin uh, my lesson tonight, I want to uh, I want to compliment the congregation on uh, uh, the mission attitude in this church. This is the most mission-minded church that I have ever known, and I've known a few churches, and uh, uh, most generous um, mission people who make a study of mission say that a, a congregation <clears throat> should um, have 10%, delegate 10% of its income to mission work. And I sit on the mission committee and I know that there's something like 17% of the budget of this congregation goes for mission work. And that is to be highly commendable. And I hope it will always stay that way. And if it doesn't, and I'm not alive. I'm gonna to try to find some way to send a plague or something back uh, to uh, afflict those who have changed it. Because that's, um, uh, we, don't, we don't want it to change. This is, this is too good. My, um, my uh, part that I'm doing tonight This ain't working. If you have, there, there it is. Thank you. Um, I, um, not long ago, a man came to me just before I made a presentation about our mission work, and he said, I don't want to appear dumb, but said, where in the world is, is uh, South Sudan? And uh, that's not the first time that somebody has asked me that. And South Sudan, is just below Sudan. Those are two different countries now. And Sudan is just below Egypt on the African continent. Now, if uh, you were looking at the bottom part of the, of the screen, there's a, a little word called Juba, and that's the capital city. That's where we always fly in. That's where everything takes place uh, you know, in South Sudan, that's just the capital. So we refer to that quite often because that's the place where we always uh, fly into. Now, before I start too, there's one thing I like to say because sometimes you go to a congregation and you're going to tell the story of the mission work and somebody will come up and say, well, what are you going to be begging for tonight? because this is the way they refer to missionaries who come to their congregation to tell about their work. I, for your information, whenever I tell the story of our work, I have a policy. I never, ever ask for funds. I never make an appeal for money in any of the presentations I make. So tonight, I want you to know that you can sit down all the way on the seat you can lean back against the back of the seat and you can relax and take a big breath because nobody's going to ask you for money tonight for South Sudan. So anyway, whoops, it's working real, I don't, well, I don't know how that picture got in there, but. <laughs> but since it's there, isn't that just about the cutest thing you've ever seen? I'm just embarrassed that we have such grandchildren. 
What I would like to think that I'm doing tonight with you folks is what the Apostle Paul did in Acts the 14th chapter, beginning in verse 26 and 27. In this passage, Paul has just returned from a missionary, his first missionary journey. And he comes back and he's going to make a report to the church at Antioch. And this is what it says from, from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now I think that's what I like to think that, that I'm gonna be doing tonight. I'm gonna to be talking to you about how that God has opened the door of faith to the people of South Sudan. And I'm here to give you a report as the Apostle Paul and Barnabas did to the church in Antioch. Now I don't have any special revelations from God that you don't have. But as I read that passage, it occurs to me, I bet you Paul didn't do that in 30 minutes. And um, I'm gonna try real hard, but if it doesn't work out real well, well, you just say to the person next to you, well, he's doing the best that he can. Now, if I were in your place tonight, I would wonder why is this not working? Now, again, I like to think that what we're doing too is what Paul did in Acts the 21st chapter, in verse 17 through 19. He now has come back from several other missionary journeys. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the Bible says that he goes there and he visits with the elders of the church there. Now listen what he says. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the others were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now that's exactly what we're doing tonight, is reporting on what God has done uh, through the people of South Sudan. Now if I were in your place tonight and we're talking about the work that this church has done and money that this church has put into this mission project. I would want to know what has been accomplished with the money that the church, and through your contributions, has put into this project. Good stewardship means that we're not going to waste the Lord's money, even here or in Africa or wherever it is. Now to accomplish that, I try, I'm gonna to try to show you where we were two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago, we were finally able to start doing what we had been working to try to start for several years. And then after I show you where we were, I'm going to try to show you now where we are today and let you see the progress that has been done. It is not uncommon among preachers that every once in a while, <clears throat> one of them will say, I woke up on Sunday morning and I decided that the sermon I had been working on all week wasn't gonna work. 
And so I, I changed. Now, preachers have a, have a reputation of not starting preparation on a sermon until the third song before the before they gets up to speak anyway. But, but, you know, that's hard to do. Well, I haven't done that. But I have awakened at three o'clock in the morning and not been able to go back to sleep because I'm trying to figure out how exactly to say what I need to say. Now, if I tell you exactly what has taken place in South Sudan and what has been accomplished, then the first thing that occurs to me is that somebody's going to say, well, he's just bragging about what, what he has done. And that is not what I want to do. And that's what worries me, that if I tell you this, you say, well, you brag. Now, there was some, it was, a, it was either Yogi Berra or Dizzy Dean or one of those philosophers that said, it ain't bragging if it's true. And so, it's not bragging in the first place because I'm not telling you what I've done. A lot of what has happened is probably maybe done in spite of me. But it is because God has been working through you, through this congregation, and through churches and individuals all the way from California to Vermont and in, in South Sudan. God has been working and this is what he has done and I'm just the messengers to report to you what God has done. And so I hope that you will look into my heart and not so much to my words and see that this is what has happened. Now, our primary goal is in South Sudan, I wish so bad that this would work. Our primary goal in South Sudan has been in evangelizing the country. And our method of going about trying to evangelize the country is that we're going to construct and set into operation a preacher training school. Our philosophy is that there are sufficient men in South Sudan that we can start training them to preach to their own people. They can preach to their own people in their own language and in their own culture, and they can be trained in that way. And we've called it the South Sudan Bible School. This is, this is our philosophy of what we're trying to do, and this is our goal. Now, where were we? Two and a half years ago, we had been given a, a plot of 24 acres of land by the community, and uh, we were ready to start trying to do now what we've been working toward for several years. And so we cleared a, a path around that, that land, and then we dug holes to put fence posts in, and then we had something like 720 um, posts that were cut by the workers there in the community out in the bush, and those were brought and we were put up, and um, barbed wire was strung around those, and that gave us a fence for our campus. And then, I'm gonna kick this thing or stomp on it in a little bit. And then we started construction. There were uh, trenches dug for foundations for some of the schools. 
And then after that, there were, there were foundations that were laid for some buildings. After the foundations were laid, there were some... Uh, Glenn, somebody up there is going to have to help me, and I, I'll raise my finger, and then we'll go on to the next one. And then after that, there were walls that were built, and then the walls went up higher, and then after these walls were built, then we were finished, we had a Bible school building. And in that Bible school building, we had the first class of preachers. Last year, we had our first session of, teach, of preachers. Now, up to this time, we didn't have preachers. We didn't have anybody that was trained. And here now we have the first class of preachers. And then we can send these men out. Our, our method of training these men is that we bring them into the school and we teach them Bible classes all day long for five days a week. They live on campus for three and a half months. Then we send them back home. If they do well, then they're invited to come back for level two. The first part is level one. This is level two they'll be invited back for. If they do, then they go back home. If they continue to do well, then they're brought back and trained in what we call level three. And this is the first class of those. And the second class is this one. We do not discourage men of other churches to enroll in our Bible classes in the Bible training school. And this year, there were three denominational preachers that were uh, uh, asked to, be, to come be enrolled as students, and we accepted them. We're happy to accept them because we know if they will come and they will sit under the teaching of Bible scholars all day long for three and a half months, they will leave as gospel preachers. And then there's the third class that is going on right now. And this third class, five men have already been baptized. Now that came from other churches and some even came from a, from a pagan background. These are, this is what is being done at the present time, where we are. Now, these men came from homes where they, they slept on a mat that was spread on a dirt floor. And here we give them a place to sleep. There's a dormitory room. These are their beds. And you see how neat those beds are made. You teenagers should take some lessons from that. Uh, those for men who slept on a dirt floor to be able to make a bed like that must say that they really appreciate what they have. Now, those men eat real good and we have to feed them three times a day. And so we have three cooks. These ladies are the cooks uh, uh, for those men. And and here these women are washing dishes. Now in that Bible school building, we had a kitchen that we built, a very nice kitchen. Those ladies did not want to cook inside that kitchen, they wanted to cook outside. And so they did, they're washing dishes here, they will, hang, they will put them on those racks over there and dry. Here I am with the teachers. 
or with the, with the cooks. We're sitting in the shade. At this time, I am trying to explain to these African women what a budget is. I'm trying to explain to them that you have three and a half months to feed these 20 men. Three meals a day, you have this much money. You will get no more money. You have to make that do. And they're beginning to understand a little bit of how that goes. Now, back in the very back of this picture, this is another building other than the Bible school building is a clinic. It was very hard for us to be able to go to this, this village and to say to these people, we know that your children are dying for lack of medicine. We know that, that they're sick. And we know that there is medicine available for them. But we're here to tell you about Jesus. Now they're not going to listen to us tell them about Jesus until they understand that we care about them. And so we have a clinic. This is John Jock. John was, is Sudanese. He was um, uh, uh, going to school as a nurse in Ethiopia. He was preaching there for a Sudanese congregation. He became available to us, so he is the nurse who is taking care of our clinic. There we now have five uh, staff people in the clinic. The nurse, the assistant nurse or midwife. There's a man who takes care of, of the people who come. He's a clerk, he does the paperwork. There's a lady who keeps the place clean and there's another man who's a lab technician. These are the five workers in our, in our, uh, in our clinic. Now, the first time that I ever saw this clinic I walked down to it about nine o'clock in the morning. It had opened, been open a while, but this was my first visit. And I walked down to see the clinic and these people were lined up like this. I counted 39 adults who were lined up waiting to see the nurse. Now here's a lady that was there at the same time. You only have to look at this lady's face and that baby to understand what's going on in their lives. There is no doctor from Pujac that this lady can go to. It's a full day's drive. It would cost more money than she could possibly ever come up with in her life. In the other direction, there is a doctor, but it's across the border into Uganda. It costs $50 just to get across the border for her. There's nothing that she can do for her baby but to bring them to see this nurse. And for a few dollars of medicine in our country, that baby can stay alive. And you can tell by looking at that baby, it is not going to live. Just before Christmas of this year, a family in this congregation gave me a check for the Sudan work of $2,000. Our nurse for the clinic had given me a list of medicines that he needed before I left in January to go uh, to Pujac. I went to a pharmacy that I had found in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Juba, the capital city, and I gave him this list of medicines. He could fill the whole list of medicines it was a pharmacy supply, and the price came to $1,940. And I applied that $2,000 to this. I kept the other $60. And, 
<coughs> but uh, that these boxes are filled with that $1,940 worth of medicines. Those medicines in those boxes will keep many babies and people alive. And many people, it will be kept alive. This man came, he was blind, he was 80 years old. And he came because, as he said, he just wanted a bit of medicine. Another man was there the day that we first came. He was well-dressed. He um, spoke English very well. We visited with him. He told us that my sister and I traveled for nine hours to get here yesterday because we heard you had medicines here that she needed. They did not have these medicines in Juba. We had the medicine that she needed. It is, a, it is a service that the community really appreciates. Two years ago, the church in this community was meeting in this building right here. Today, they're meeting in the front of this building here. This is probably the only building in the Church of Christ in South Sudan. Now, the most popular picture that we have ever run in our newsletter is a picture of our security guards <laughs> because there are people in this community who would come and steal whatever they can. And um, um, we can't give them guns. It's uh, illegal to have guns in South Sudan. And we don't want to shoot somebody and really hurt them bad. But these security men, you know, I want to show you that this, this is not a toy. I took a close-up of the arrowheads. Those arrowheads can lay some hurt on some potential thief. And when he comes back the next day to the clinic, you get that arrowhead removed from him. We, uh, uh, he's, he's had it. There's a custom in South Sudan that's very, that's very good. The people in South Sudan are very friendly. They will look at you very badly like they're going to eat you as you pass them on the road and then you wave at them and then they break out in smiles and uh, they have beautiful faces at that time. There's a custom that when people come to this place where we stay, it's kind of a motel, and sometimes we're sitting out in front of it and, and people will drive in because they are coming to stay and they don't go directly to the office. They don't have an office for the first place. But uh, they don't go to make arrangements for their room. They come by and greet all the people that are there. So they come by and tell us who they are and shake hands. The man that is on my right in this picture came by about a year ago. And, and um, he was with another carload of people, a group, and then there was other groups that came from the community to, to visit with those people, and they were having a good time. And later he came down and, and introduced himself to me. And then one of our men that was with us and interpreting and everything, this man spoke good English, said to that is the mem member of parliament who represents this area. That's our equivalent of a congressman. 
Well, we visited with him a good bit, and before he left, he told me, he said, now if you ever need anything, you let me know. And so I had his name and his phone number. Well, he came back again. We met him another time that we were there and got a little bit better acquainted with him. This time he was there again. We got even better acquainted with him because we spent about a, a day with him. He was just two doors down from the, in the motel from us. <clears throat> His vehicle had problems. It broke down on the road. He had to have somebody come out from the state capitol to fix it. And so he came down one day and, and uh, said, I've got it fixed, but I, I have no way to get there. So we made available our car and our driver to take him there. But I knew that that man that if we ever walk into his office and we say to him that we need help with something, he'll remember the day that we, that we got acquainted with him. Now the man on the other side in the black uh, is, is a, was an interesting person. He was very friendly to us, spoke excellent English, liked to call us Americans. And he said, I used to live in the United States. I have dual citizenship. And... Uh, uh, we asked him, well, where did you live in the United States? Well, I lived in Texas, and I lived in Nashville, Tennessee. I said, do you know where Mount Juliet is? Yes, I know where Mount Juliet is. Well, we, we visited quite a bit with him, and then I asked him, well, where do you, where do you live in Juba? He said, I, I, in South Sudan. He says, I live in Juba. I said, okay, um, I asked, what, what do you do in Juba? What do you work at? He says, I work in the office of the president. Well, we got to be good friends. <laughs> I have his name and his phone number too. So this time, where we are with the school and with our work there is we have this kind of a staff now. We have three Bible teachers, five clinic workers, three cooks, two security guards, and one maintenance man or caretaker. We did not have this uh, until just recently. Okay, so what progress has been made while we've been here and during this period of time? Well, I think we've made these, these accomplishments. The school has begun, and we're in our third session. We had 17 preachers to graduate in the first session. We had 20 in the second session. There were 17 in the third session. But I want to point out to you that this represents 53, perhaps 53 men that we have graduated, represents a whole lot more than the number 53. When we began two and a half months ago, all we had was the promise of two men that they would come and teach in their Bible school. Now we have 53 men who came to us not knowing hardly anything at all about the Bible. They were leaders of the church because they cared about Christians and, and helping other Christians and the church needed leadership and so they provided it. They knew how to maybe lead singing, they knew how to lead a prayer, they maybe knew how to read scripture, and they perhaps were one of the few in the congregation that had a Bible. 
And they came to us. And now in three and a half months of concentrated Bible study, these men have gone back to be able to teach in those congregations, to be able to preach, and they can, they can know what they're talking about now. They have a biblical foundation to what they're doing. And this just doesn't hardly ever happen. Here's an example of one of our graduates to show you what accomplishments have been made. This man graduated from our school in the first session. He began a church in his home community. He baptized 15 immediately. There were 20 people baptized on August the 5th when we were there. That church and he have targeted four more villages in which they're going to begin churches. Now, these churches will have men who've been baptized but know nothing about the Bible, but they need to be leaders. They will come to our school, they will be trained and they'll go back, they'll start other churches and then they'll have men who will come from there as well. This is an example of what is being done. Now, here's another example. Jeremy Thompson was with me. He's superintendent of schools in Texas. He's our academic dean from the U.S. Now, on the um, Sunday that we were there, one of the teachers invited him to go with him to a, um, um, a preaching appointment that he had. And so they took off on two motorbikes. They went as far as they could go on the road, and then they had to go off onto a path like this one. Well, after a while, the path got worse, but they kept on going. Soon they came to a village that you can barely see here. And then after they got through the village, there was the church that was gathered and was waiting on them. They had services, and then there were some beautiful sights that I want to show you. These are some of the most beautiful sights. These people are on the way to a baptism. And so here's the group. They're going to baptism. There were 20 people that were baptized that Sunday. This is what it's all about, folks, is that we are baptizing people in this work. They're being baptized all over this area. It's what it's all about. Here's another example of another church that had just started. This is at the baptismal scene. The man in the, the white shirt and the tie, only one there with a white shirt and tie, he's the chief of the village. Now, on the own, I'm, it's taking me a lot longer to get through this because I'm trying to figure out this thing here that Somebody, there's a demon in this. It was working perfectly just before we started. We checked it. The first youth meeting that has ever been held in the Church of Christ in the nation of South Sudan was held just a few months ago. Now the Sudanese people in the community worked this up themselves. They invited the young people to come. Now, you young people might think, well, now that's real cool. But let me tell you about a youth meeting there. This youth meeting, they would come, but they didn't have anything to eat when they got there. And so the youth would have to bring food with them when they came. It would all be put together by some cooks, and that would be what they would eat. He said, well, that's neat, that's all right. 
except that I want to tell you also that there is no public transportation in South Sudan. Some of these young people that came to this youth meeting walked up to 20 miles in order to come. And there were between two and 300 of them who came to this meeting. Just um, early December, late December, we packed up a container and some of our men here helped with this. This container was shipped to South Sudan. It should arrive, uh, you know, just any time now. This container contains all kinds of things that, you know, we think, why do you send that? We sent all the benches for the church building. We sent um, um, shelving for the clinic, shelving for the library and the preacher training school building. We sent 10,000 bars of soap. We sent clothing. We sent all kinds of things in this. And why do you do that? Because these things are not available there. And they're, they're very valuable, but it's, they're, they're, there's nothing here, you know, that, that, we can, that we can have. Now, one of the requests that we get quite often over there is for communion trays. They don't have any. They can't get any. They've asked us, can you just find some used communion trays and bring? Well, I don't know how to find that many used communion trays. Then if we found them, how in the world would we get them there? And so this man, I forget his name, um, he, he, he designed this board and then drilled 49 holes in it that would fit communion cups. And then he made, I think, 57 of those and we ship those over, and those churches can use this for communion trays for who knows how long. The churches over there also do not have grape juice. There's no grape juice available in South Sudan. You should have seen the day that I went to, to uh, Walmart and bought 360 boxes of little concentrated uh, grape juice powder, packets, boxes of packets in order to ship over to them so they could have communion. Little things like that they don't have. So these are, these are things that we're working on and, and that we're trying to accomplish. Now in these, in these villages where these churches are being, being planted, I need to tell you as well that there are no other churches in those villages. And so when our men go in to establish a church, they have no competition there. It's not always going to be that way. I learned just this week from the studies that have been done from some denominational mission organizations that in their mind, the three most receptive areas on evangelism or mission radar for their, for their religious groups are First of all, Cambodia, and the second, Burma, and the third one is South Sudan. The denominations are going to be coming very soon. We could send a preacher out and establish a new congregation every week if we wanted to. But if we did that, then went on to a new, new village to establish another uh, uh, 
a church, then there would be uh, no one there to nurture and to train these people. And they have no Bible knowledge. In a week's time, they would just spiritually uh, uh, dry up. So this is our progress during the past year. We have had two new congregations, 10 new congregations that have been started that I know of. And we've had over 200 baptized. 65 were baptized at one time. Now there have been a lot more done that I don't have access to that kind of information. So we know it is happening, we just don't know where. But so what does the future look like in South Sudan? Let me, let me explain it by this. That about four years ago, we visited a village there. Later on, a church was established in that community. There was a man by the name of Julius that was converted. And Julius, within three months of his baptism, was teaching and baptizing other people. Now, in that village, he and another man have reached out and established two other congregations in other villages. And they're, they're selecting men from those villages, those churches, to come to our schools so they will be trained to be leaders in those churches and to preach. And they are telling me that they are receiving calls from other villages that would you come here and, and, and establish churches here as well. The man on the right, he has a pink shirt on, but it doesn't show, uh, is on your right, holding the book. I got a call one day, or a message from a lady in Kentucky. She had an internet Bible student. She thought he was ready to be baptized. She wanted to know, is there any way that we could follow up with it? Well, we sent the information to Juba, where he lived. Some of our people followed up with it. He was baptized. He works for the UN. Now he's a leader in the church. He wants to quit his job with the UN and, and, and go to work preaching full time. Just before I left in, in January to go back to South Sudan, in December, about two weeks before I was to leave, I got an email message from a lady in Phoenix, Arizona, and she asked me, or said that I have an internet Bible student, and he is, I think, ready to be baptized. I'm trying to find somebody that can follow, him, follow up with him. I know that this congregation where I am assists you in some work in Africa. Do you have any idea where Juba is? Well, I fortunately did. So I put him in contact with our people and he was baptized the Sunday that we were in, in South Sudan. Now I tell you that story because here are some opportunities that are going to be coming to us. That the internet is becoming a means by which you can teach the Bible. And the World English Institute is, is advertising this heavily. I get a list of between of everybody that's asking for internet Bible studies from this group every day. And there are seen five and eight people a week from Juba and South Sudan who are requesting Bible studies. And this is over the internet. Hopefully soon we'll be able to, to uh, start a new ministry here. 
and where we're going to ask for people who will be able to teach these people over the internet. And then when they're ready to be baptized, we have people in Juba who can follow up with this. Not only this, but we have a public school opportunity. It is mandated in South Sudan that every student in the school, in the public school, be taught a Bible class every day. Now they don't know what a Bible class is most of the time and so it turns out to be kind of an ethics class. I asked the head minister, headmaster of the school that's just across the road from our campus who has about 800 to 1,000 students. I said, if we could do something good for your, for your campus, for your school, would you allow us to provide the Bible class teacher for your school? He said, well, of course. For $150 to $250, we can provide the teacher who teaches a Bible class to every student in that school every day and think of the influence that they can have upon their students. Healing Hands is, has two trucks ready to go to South Sudan. One is a water well drilling truck and the second one is a support truck. They're just waiting on somebody to drive them to Savannah, Georgia so they can be landed, uh, handed uh, over to the, to the shipping agents there. And uh, when we can go in and provide clean water for the people of this, this area, we will be able to tell them that the Church of Christ has provided you this clean water. And they will remember that and that will open all kinds of doors for our, for our students. Buddy Pickler and I went to Indiana just the other day and picked up this tractor here. I have never seen a tractor in South Sudan. I doubt that there's one within 50 miles, at least, maybe that I haven't seen in South Sudan. And I'm anxious to take this. This man has designed this and manufactured it and donated it to us. Um, this is designed for Africa. You notice the wheels on it. They cannot go flat. And uh, uh, it will hold, a tank will hold a half a gallon of gasoline. It will run for half a day, he said. And we can use this, we can use it to no end, but this is donated to us in order that we can help people in that area. Now, I, in, first, in Acts, the first chapter in verse eight, Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We would like to think that Pajak, South Sudan, where our school is located, is the Jerusalem of South Sudan. And our students will go from there to Magwe County and from there they will go to Eastern Equatoria State and from there they will go all over South Sudan. I had a friend that I was traveling with in Ethiopia one time we were stopped for lunch and he got out his map of Ethiopia and he was, he was showing me where we were going. And he pointed to a place on the map and where we were going and then he took his finger and drew a circle around that, that spot. And he said, Brother Don, this is Church of Christ country. He said that there are 125 congregations of the church in that area. What he didn't tell me that somebody else did later was that that area that he was talking about was the size of Wilson County. 
I would like to think that the day is coming in which we'll put our finger on Pajak and we'll draw a circle around it and say to people that this is Church of Christ country. God is preparing, I think, all kinds of opportunities for us. That he is preparing opportunities for us that will blossom. He's preparing opportunities that we don't even see at this time and that they will be coming to us and we will need to take advantage of those opportunities. Now, here's one of those areas in which I need to be really frank with you so that you will understand what your money is doing and your oversight is doing in South Sudan. And it's one of those things that is hard to say and I'm, I have my doubts that it'll come out right and it's one of those things that I wake up at three o'clock in the morning saying, how am I going to say this and it's going to come out right? But here goes. Read my heart, not the words. I would challenge you to find a mission work in the Church of Christ that has been this successful anywhere in the world in our generation. I know that sounds kind of frank but I believe it's true. A friend that went with me on my last trip to South Sudan told me just a couple of days ago that since he's been back, he's gotten six phone calls from people wanting to know what was South Sudan like? How was your visit? Because they're interested in it. People are hearing about what we're doing and what's being accomplished, the successes that we're having, and they are becoming interested in, in working in South Sudan as well. In another area, two men who have visited here and made a substantial donation to our work have, have started a boarding vocational training uh, school. And they told me just the other day that it looks like that it, what they're trying to do is going to cost a million dollars and they're planning to go ahead with it. You see, they're seeing that these opportunities are there. Now, Here's the thing that I hope that you will really see too. All of this is, was accomplished when one man stumbled into a church building in Houston, Texas one Sunday morning. This man had come to Houston, Texas as an immigrant from South Sudan. On Sunday morning, he went out looking for a church that he might go to and he walked into one of our church services and the preacher was astute enough that he met him, he taught him, he baptized him, he sent him to the Sunset School of Preaching in Lubbock. Then he went back to, to, South, to Uganda to preach to his own people in a, in a refugee camp and about 3,000 people were baptized and these people were the nucleus of this work that we have now in South Sudan. Now this work has been accomplished with no Americans in South Sudan working at it. It has been done with all South Sudanese people from start to finish. And this, it seems to me, is the way you do mission work. They don't need Americans. All they need is our support to teach their own people. That's all that they need. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions for you to think about. In Acts 14, the Apostle Paul comes back from his first missionary journey with Barnabas. He comes back and he gives a report to Antioch, the church in Antioch. 
Now in Acts the eighth chapter, Saul is destroying the church in Jerusalem. And it says that everybody in the church is having to leave except for the apostles. And that in verse four it says, and everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. There were some of those people surely that wound up in Antioch. Now here is this man that caused them to have to move from Jerusalem, leave their homes and their jobs and maybe some of their family and now he is telling them what he accomplished on this missionary journey. What do you think is the reaction of the people who were hearing what he had to say? I don't know. But I'll bet you that there were some leather-faced people, sunburned, that were sitting there with tears running down their cheeks, tears of joy. And their hearts were beating with happiness over having heard what has been accomplished with the preaching of the gospel that we sent these men to do. I would like to think that that is what Mount Juliet will be doing. That is their attitude. Let me ask you another question. What condition do you think the Church of Christ would be in in South Sudan right now if Mount Juliet had never decided to become involved in this work? You've seen where we were and where we are now one of the most successful mission projects in the Church of Christ in this generation. I would dare say that there might be maybe a handful of little churches with very few people in the whole nation. Let me ask you another question. What would happen to the work in Sudan, if the Mount Juliet Church were to say all of a sudden, we're sick and tired of this, this is 9,000 miles away, and we're just tired of all of this, let's just quit it. I'll tell you what would happen. The students would all be sent home. The doors would be locked. The clinic would be shuttered. A sign would be put up that we can't help your sick babies any longer. I don't think that's what we want, is it? Now, let me get down, and I know I've run over. I shouldn't have told you that. There's a, there's, a, there's a principle in communication that says it ain't 30 minutes if it doesn't seem like 30 minutes. And it's maybe sound like a whole lot more to you, but you know, just don't invite me back or cut my salary or something, you know. The question that is most often asked of me about this work is, when are you going to find someone to replace yourself? It's not easy to replace me, folks. Although my wife would like to try. 
I've been looking for five years to find someone to replace my, me in this work. It's gotten to the point where I almost feel like the preacher who went out and picked up the paper on the driveway one morning and he came back in, was reading through it and he came to the obituary section and he looked and there was his picture and underneath it was his obituary with the exact information. And he called up one of the elders real quick and he said, have you seen the morning paper in the obituary section? He said, yes, I have. And where are you calling from? <laughs> Somebody's passing my name around. I, I got a letter the other day from the Neptune Society giving me an extra special good deal on a prepaid cremation. I don't know if they wanted to, you to do cremation before, you know, early or what it was, you know. But... To answer the question, I'm going to continue in this work as long as I can, can put one foot in front of the other one. I am happy to say to you that we do have somebody who wants to retire, who wants to replace me. He has vast experience, 25 years in African work. He has a PhD in missiology. That's the educated term for mission work. And uh, he would like to do that. The problem is that when you retired preacher like myself, then living on Social Security, then, you know, congregations don't have to pay you, and they get spoiled of that. Then they want you to replace yourself and find another retired preacher they don't have to pay. Well, if you found somebody, he can work for two or three years maybe, and then you've got to go through the whole process again, and you can't find anybody in two or three years, so what do you do? Then if you find somebody younger, he, he needs a salary. One of the first things that somebody taught me was that mission work is not cheap. Now, it'd be hypocritical of us tonight to leave the impression with you that we are only interested in people in foreign countries for maybe the things that we've talked about during this Mission Emphasis Day. We want you to know, though, that we're just as interested in the person across the street or the person living next door to us or the person that's sitting next to us in the pew in a church service, too. A church where one time was having a, a revival, a summertime revival. And they had a visiting preacher. One day the local preacher and the visiting preacher went out to visit some folks that they thought would be good prospects, become Christians during this meeting. They went to see this older lady and they explained to her how that they were really needing to encourage her to become a Christian now. When they said that, she got up and went into the other room and she picked up a sack and brought it back. In that sack were her clothes that she was ready to go be baptized. She was waiting for somebody to come and ask her, and there's no telling how long those clothes had been in that sack. I have preached longer than a lot of you people have lived. And I only remember one person coming to me and asking to be baptized. Everybody else, and I think I baptized a lot of people, I had to ask them. And it's good people be motivated on their own to want to do that. But if you're sitting there tonight 
and you're waiting for someone to ask you, I'm asking you. Is that sufficient? And you can come. We can assist you as we stand and sing.